As we look at church history, obviously there's more here than what we could cover in a week of studies, let alone in two or three nights. But you know, really in reality, we don't talk about church history very much in our brotherhood. We typically deal with bits and pieces of the first century, which as well we should, and we often deal bits and pieces of the restoration period with the Campbells and the Stone Movement and so on and so forth, but there's that long gap in between of almost 2,000 years that many times we are sort of void in knowledge of. Really what I want to focus on tonight, I want us to look at how the church began to be really a church that was not the church of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, last night we talked about some very basic concepts. First of all, to give us a review, we noted that the church was established on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was given, and of course, the apostles were endued with power from on high. We noted that when the church was established, that the early church, after having been baptized and the Lord daily adding to those that were saved, the church began to grow and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They went back to the apostles' word time and time again. And of course, as we'll notice even more tomorrow night, if we're going to go back to the New Testament, then we've got to also go back to the apostles' words time and time again. We noted also how the church began to spread. It started on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and as Acts chapter 1 tells us, and as Acts itself begins to manifest, it went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, including Africa. The Ethiopian nobleman from down there in Africa was converted by Philip and took the gospel with him. And of course, the apostle Paul was converted, and three great journeys were made as he went out into the Gentile world, and he began to convert people and establish faithful congregations of the Lord's church. But of course, the apostles were not naive. Jesus had warned them, and now they warned others in the letters that they wrote to be very careful because there was going to come a falling away. And you know, you can imagine what the Apostle Paul, for example, must have thought. He saw heresy even in his own day begin to, uh, begin to pop up. But he knew that after the apostles died, he knew that after that period of formative years was gone, there would be all kinds of changes that would come, and there would be, as he says in Acts 20, wolves within the flock to draw people away after them. And so the church was going to end up in a crisis. The church was going to end up at a crossroads, and the church was going to have to decide, are we going to go back to the apostles' doctrine, or are we going to begin to add the doctrines of men? And sadly to say, many times the doctrines of men were added to Christendom. And so what we're going to look at, first of all, in this second part, and I want to cover two parts tonight, if possible, is the time of crisis, which occurred directly after the apostles, until the time of Constantine. Now we'll explain more about who Constantine was, but Christianity, between the end of the first century and the beginning of about the 4th century, Constantine was the ruler, was a very illegal sort of proposition. You literally could give your life, literally could die for your faith. And maybe as we will notice tonight, there's that great song, Faith of Our Fathers Living Still. And I want 
sometimes in the church today. If we would have the stamina and the strength to die for our faith. Or do we really even have the strength to live for our faith? You know, Jesus died for us. And that's a great sacrifice, but he didn't leave it there. He arose and he lives for us. And he's still, again, making for sure we have all that we need today. Well, as the church began to spread, and when I say church again, I'm going to use that in a rather accommodative term because the church at some point became no church at all, really. It became just another political organization. But as the church spread, it began to spread from east to west. It began to start down in Jerusalem, as of course the Bible instructs, and then it began to spread throughout the Mediterranean world, Asia Minor, through the Apostle Paul and through the other apostles, and it began to have quite a following as time went on. And yet, it was persecuted. And what we find is very interesting, because in spite of persecution, the church spread by leaps and bounds. In fact, as we noted the other evening, it was the blood of martyrs that literally watered the seed of the Word. The church never grew any more and any better than in the soil of persecution. Today we want things easy. We want things to go our way. We pray as we should that our land would be wise. But you know, even if not, even if they persecute us, even if they call us to die, the church can still grow. The church must grow. We must hold on to our faith. Now, while we're not going to cover this in depth, I might mention that even though the church started in Jerusalem, as you can see on this map, there were various other cities that I've outlined here where major church centers were also developed. Antioch, which we noted last night. And then, of course, down in Alexandria, Egypt, later on in Rome, and then Constantinople, which we'll talk also about tonight as uh, Constantine moves his capital to that city. But the church began to spread, and through the change, exchange of cultural ideas and through the exchange of philosophies, things begin to change. But I want to pause just for a moment, and I want us to talk about this persecution concept. I want us to talk about the fire of persecution because, as I mentioned, from the first through the fourth centuries, and even beyond to some degree, the church was ravaged by persecution. You know, Jesus had warned of that. In fact, in Matthew 5, verse 10, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus knew that if he was persecuted, and if he was going to die for his beliefs, and his faith, we might very well as well. And so he said, we're blessed. We have a blessing from God. It's almost as if we have our own special beatitude laid upon us because when we are willing to die for our faith or be persecuted for our faith, then that faith is a real and genuine faith. People do not generally die for that which they think is a lie. The apostles, of course, died for what they knew was the truth. And they encourage us to do the same if that's necessary. And even if we don't die physically, what does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 12? He says that we present our bodies a living sacrifice. We die daily to the needs of the church and the doctrine and to the head, Jesus Christ. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, perhaps the last letter Paul ever penned in a Roman getting ready to give his life, he says, yea, all those who live godly 
will suffer persecution. You know, that's a wonderful promise, even though it has some dire consequences. We will suffer. It may not be death. It may not necessarily be physical per, uh, persecution, but there will be something that we suffer and face if we are going to be in Christ. John to the Revelation churches said, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of well, you know, when you go back to the early church, and of course in the Apostles' Day, you notice all of a sudden that it's the Jewish folks of Palestine who first persecuted the church. The Romans. Now, why is that? Well, there's a very important reason for that, but you know, the first thing that began to happen is that the church, as it began to go forth, began to be persecuted because of the doctrines that they taught. Judaism began to persecute Christianity because they saw Christians as an offshoot of themselves, heretics really, who were promoting this man who they said had triumphed uh, or had uh, elevated himself to the power of God. And so they persecuted the Christians or those who followed him. Now you know this is very interesting that occurs in the book of Acts. And I won't say that this is necessarily always true every time, but in Jesus' ministry, you'll find that Jesus more generally encounters the Pharisees. He comes up against those men who are very staunch in doctrine, and he calls them hypocrites. And of course, there's a great amount of conflict between Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees, not so much the Sadducees. But now after the resurrection, after Pentecost, when the apostles began to fill Jerusalem with this doctrine of this man who had risen from the dead, the Sadducees and they are hot. They are upset. Why? Because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They were very materialistic in their views. And so during this period of time, you find the church being persecuted by Sadducees over a variety of issues and by Pharisees for that matter too over their refusal to the law as they thought they should, over the issue of circumcision, over the uh, issue of the resurrection, over nationalism, because Jesus had said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, you know, Rome, basically, during that formative period, when you find the church growing from Acts 2 to Acts 8, and so on and so forth, is uh, sort of neutral about the church. It's not the Romans who come in and first persecute the Christians. Now, why was that? Well, if you remember the history of that time, Rome had taken over Israel in about 63 B.C. And Rome was of the opinion that as long as its conquered peoples did not create havoc, then they would sort of leave the tribal religions alone. And so they viewed Judaism as one of those areas they had conquered, and they gave them even special rights, by the way, but they basically left the Jewish people alone. Now, of course, as long as Christianity was viewed as part of Judaism, then of course they fell under that umbrella of exemption from persecution by Rome. Now after 70 AD, which we'll notice in a moment, after 70 AD, of course Judaism died. The temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and now all of a sudden Christianity stands alone and they won't worship the emperor. And so then they set themselves up for persecution. 
Well, you know, A.D. 70 is a very formative period in the New Testament. And even though it may sort of lie latent under the scenes in some of the texts, there are hints of this destruction and this, uh, this, uh, this ending of the Jewish economy. You see, Jesus had prophesied that, you know, the law would come to pass. It would pass away, rather. He was going to fulfill it. And that, of course, ultimately was demonstrated in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem fell. Because in reality, Jerusalem falls, the temple falls, the sacrificial system falls, the priesthood falls, the records of genealogy fall. And really, in reality, if Jesus is not the Messiah, there can never be one because there's no way to trace his lineage. That, of course, is the very point of Matthew and Luke in their genealogy. But the point is, is that after AD 70, after Jerusalem fell and Judaism was basically no more, that's when the Christians stood out. That's when, of course, they could no longer be con included or considered to be part of the Jewish religion. Now, why did Rome really care about Christian persecution? Why did they care? I mean, the Christians were loving. The Christians taught that of the neighbors as ourselves. They did good. In fact, some of the emperors themselves were amazed at how many people the Christians would take care of, even in this pagan Rome or pagan society. You know, back in that period of time, the fathers had, of a family had the right of life and death over their children. And of course, female children often were not valued very much in that culture. And sometimes children would literally be left out to die from exposure on the side of the road. The Christians were picking them up. The Christians were taking those little babies and saving them. And they were also feeding the poor. They were doing things that the state should have been doing, but wouldn't turn a hand. Why? Because Christians loved God. And that love of God, that love that God gave to them, was then manifested and shared with others. But there were also other reasons that Rome began to hate Christians. One was political reasons. You know, the Christians obviously viewed Jesus as Lord. They said, no, there is only one Lord. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes that clear, doesn't he, in Ephesians 4? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. There was one Lord. But now the Romans, they didn't like that. Because they said, oh no, now wait a minute, you can have Jesus as Lord if you like, but you also have to acknowledge the emperor as Lord. He is Lord Caesar. And so what we need you to do is we need you to come and pay homage to the emperor because he is also deity. And then you can do whatever you want in your church service. The Christians wouldn't do that. The Christians would not recognize the emperor as Lord. And so they set themselves up as against the state. And so Rome, many times, would persecute and try to stamp out this faith called Christianity. For moral reasons. Now you think, for moral reasons, Christians are the most moral people ever. Yes, but let's consider what they were viewed as in the time in which they lived. You know, Christianity was pure, but in a different way than what Rome was. Rome, of course, was steeped in idolatry, steeped in debauchery, steeped in sin. And here comes, of course, these Christians, and they're doing things that the Romans don't understand. And scholars tell us that, for example, when they would assemble for the Lord's Supper, the Romans knew they were doing that 
But then there's this rumor floating around that they're taking of blood and flesh. And so the rumor began to spread, these people are cannibals. These people are nuts. They need to be stamped out. And there was this idea of, you know, Christians being brothers and sisters, and you have brothers and sisters being married to one another. Incest. Immoral. They need to be stamped out. And then, of course, they were accused of being atheists. Now, you say, how in the world can Christians be accused of being atheists? The term atheists in that context is a very special use. Because, you see, the Romans believed in all kinds of gods. And they were fine with whatever god you wanted to be in, as long as you also held Caesar, or the Roman emperor, as God. Well, of course, the Christians wouldn't do that. They said, oh, we can't accept gods. We are atheistic when it comes to your gods, because we have our own god. That did not set well. But, you know, we also then find another reason. And, you know, always follow the money trail. Follow the pocketbook. It will tell you so much about Every situation even today. Follow the money trail. And of course, remember when Paul, for example, went to Ephesus and to other cities and he taught the gospel and people were being converted and people were leaving the idols' temples and they weren't buying the little souvenirs and the curios that had the little goddess or god anymore. And the craftsmen began to, of course, lose money. And that was the case even as Rome saw Christianity spread because the Christians wouldn't offer pagan sacrifice. They wouldn't buy the souvenirs and all of the things that the temples sold to gain money. And as more and more people began to convert to Christianity, and Christianity continued to grow by leaps and bounds during this first two or three centuries, the economic factor took over. And there was an economic impact on the society of that day, a downturn, because Christians were no longer supporting the paganism that was so rampant in those days. And so persecution began to break out. Some of it happened during the New Testament period itself or during the apostolic period. For example, Nero. I'm sure you've heard of Nero who would take Christians and dip them in oil and set them up on posts in his garden and light them afire so that he could have his garden parties. Nero was ruthless. He would put skins upon people and throw them to the wild beasts. And the wild beasts would, you know, tear those skins off and tear the flesh of the Christians to death as well. Paul died under the uh, hand of Nero. It's believed that he was beheaded. But then down the road, there came another man named Domitian. Domitian was cruel. He began to steal the property. Of, of churches, take their buildings, take, uh, you know, their, their leaders, murder the Christians. And probably in Domitian's day, it was John who then was exiled to the island of Patmos because John probably wrote the Revelation around the end of the first century. That's Domitian was in vogue. Probably the most awful of all was Decius. Decius, again, and we'll talk about him in just one second, very briefly. But he was really uh, the one who required all in the empire to offer sacrifice. In other words, you couldn't fly under the radar anymore. Because you had to go during his period of time and during his reign, and you had to literally offer sacrifice, oblation to the emperor, and then receive a signed statement from a political character who then said, it's good. We signed him off on this. He's a pagan. Christians, of course, wouldn't do that. At least not all the Christians. Now, there were some 
who gave in. In fact, this is not something we'll have time to talk about. But those who gave in, and there were thousands who did, later on when the persecution stopped, it became a real question by those who had remained faithful, what are we going to do with these backsliders? And it broke up some of the various ideas and churches of that period because some did not want to accept back those who had denied the faith. But nonetheless, you are required to deny your faith in Jesus Christ and offer, of course, to the emperor. And then Diocletian. Diocletian is interesting, and I want us to just throw that in there because, you know, sometimes people today say, why don't we have more original copies of the New Testament? Now, we have bits and pieces, 5,000 worth, that date to the various centuries, 5th century, 12th century, so on and so forth. But why don't we have more actual copies of the New Testament that go back to the 3rd century or the 2nd century? Scholars believe that probably part of the reason is because of this guy named Diocletian. He set out to stamp out Christianity. He destroyed churches. He destroyed Bibles. He burned them. He did everything he could in order to try to get Christianity stamped out. Now, he wasn't nearly as ruthless as the second guy that I mentioned a moment ago, Decius, because his object was not only to exterminate Christians, he wanted to wipe out the very idea of Christianity as well. So if you were a leader in a church, unconditional death. Death, no bones about it. You were going to die for your faith. Christians, as I mentioned, could recant. They could receive a certificate. They could be given a pass. But then they were marked, of course, as being those who gave up, apostates, their faith. So what about these martyrs? Now, you know, but the idea of martyrdom really means witness. The term martyr means witness. And, of course, the ultimate witness is the giving of one's life, isn't it? And so, you know, when we look at the martyrs, and, you know, some of these people, I think we have to be very kind to them. Because it may very well be that some of them believe things that we not, would not necessarily hold as uh, true. But we have to give them credit because they were willing to die for at least what they believed was true. Now, you know, tonight we have God's Word, and I think we believe that what we're doing is right and true. And, you know, I wonder, are we dedicated enough to give our lives for our faith? Well, these individuals did. And so I want to talk just very quickly about some of these. Stephen, for example, was the first martyr, and his story is found in Acts, the seventh chapter. James, the brother of John, was killed by the sword in Acts, the 12th chapter. Paul, although his actual death is not recorded, is one who knew his time was short, as he wrote 2 Timothy, because he says, I'm now ready to be offered. I'm like a drink offering that's going to be poured out. My life's blood is going to be poured out, and I'm going to die. One of the most famous, historic, though, martyrs was Polycarp. Polycarp of Smyrna, and You'll read about Polycarp and all of the great histories because Polycarp was believed by some to have been a student of the Apostle Paul, uh, John. He's believed to have actually sat uh, at John's feet and learned Christianity from this great apostle. And you know, he escaped the fires of death until he was an old man. He escaped until he was 86 years old, and he was then taken and he was tied to a stake. They were going to burn him. And it is said that as he dies, he says this. Having given, been given the chance to recant his faith, he says, 80 and 6 years 
I have served him. That's Christ. How can then I blaspheme my king and savior? Bring forth what thou wilt. And so then he died as he was burned at the stake. Well, what's the benefits? You know, I said the blessings and benefits of persecution and martyrdom in the cover slide that I showed. You know, really in reality, there were benefits from the persecution and the martyrdom that occurred. First of all, it separated the wheat from the chaff. In other words, it really determined who was serious about faith. It created an evangelistic, a serious evangelistic environment. Because you're not going to go out and try to convert someone to something that is frivolous. No, if it's worth dying for, it's pretty serious, isn't it? So it created a serious evangelistic uh, environment. It put the focus on Jesus rather than Rome and the the sinners. It made a clear distinction between the church and the state because it was the state now killing Christians. And of course, it helped codify the, uh, the scriptures for which one believed he would die. The faith, of course, that one would have in God's word. Which books? Another study for another time. Are we willing to die? And so then when we read, for example, the song, Frederick Faber, about the faith of our fathers, these individuals who died, both biblically and extra-biblically, give us great examples of what faith really should be. Well, of course, persecution continued until the third or fourth century. And, you know, at that point in time, the church began to go through changes. And there was a man who rose up, as the emperor, and his name was Constantine. Now, Constantine was an interesting character because he never did become a Christian until very late in life, perhaps even on his deathbed, but great influence over Christianity. He began to see that Christians were willing to die for their faith. He began to look around and see the various centers in his own empire that were Christian-oriented and strong powers, if you will, of Christianity. And so he wanted to cater to that. He wanted to see if he could get into those power structures and use them. And so then, what did he do? Well, in 313 AD, he makes an edict called the Edict of Milan. And this edict declares Christianity as a legal religion. Now, what that meant was that for all intents and purposes, there was going to be a cessation of persecution. It doesn't mean that he hated Christians just tremendously, but at least he stopped the persecution. You say, that's a great thing. No, it's not. Because immediately what happens is Constantine, now having taken over the political structure as emperor, and now having given this power to the Christians, says, I want to be in control of the Christians also. And so what he does is he begins to preside over theology. Here is a king, here is an emperor who begins to preside, for example, over the Council of Nicaea. The Nicaean Creed, of course, was that which was concocted when there were difficulties in the church at that time over who Jesus was, his nature, his deity. And by the way, most of those early church meetings, those councils that are called ecumenical councils that you'll read about, generally were over something that dealt with the deity of Christ. Who is this Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? What's the combination? And so these church councils would get together and they would have these great powwows. Well, in this case, Constantine presided over the council of Nicaea. And so then he was the one 
who helped draft the Nicene Creed. And so basically now what you have is you no longer have Lord Jesus over the church. You have Constantine, Lord Caesar, over the church. And so the of Milan led to many things that were not good. It led to a departure, even from the New Testament. It left, led to a corruption and a change of authority structure. No longer was Jesus and the apostles the ones to whom the church began to look. They began to look to other powers. Offices in the church were sold money. And of course the church and the state marry one another. And now all of a sudden you have government, church, state, all one big messy ball of wax. Now we'll leave it there for a moment. And let me just make one little rabbit trail. And that is naturally with the cessation, the end of persecution with Constantine, people now are saying, well, how do we demonstrate our faith? And you know, we struggle with that, don't we? You know, you and I don't struggle with somebody knocking on our door and saying, okay, now time to go to jail, time to be uh, killed because of your faith. We struggle. How do we demonstrate our faith? And sometimes we just say, well, we don't. So in this period of time, right after, uh, right after Constantine, you have this upheaval or you have this uh, growth, shall we say, of monasteries, monks, and different things that people are trying to do. Instead of being persecuted now, they've got to do something to demonstrate their faith, at least so they think. And so they begin to do all kinds of ascetic behaviors. For example, there was this one named, man named Simeon in about 400 AD, and he was called the Pillar Hermit. And there were others, by the way, who were Pillar Hermits or did crazy things to demonstrate how righteous they were. But this fellow, at the age of 33, took up residence on a tower, a column that was six feet in the air, and he lived there for the rest of his life. Bath, the food that he ate was just what people could kind of throw up to him. He began to stink. He began to, uh, you know, get developed sores. The, 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 the insects and the worms would be on him. And he was a mess. And people would literally cherish the worms that fell from his body to the ground below and venerate his dumbness, really. Because God didn't care about that. In fact, Paul had said, if he'd just read the book of Galatians, you know, or Colossians, that it wasn't really the, uh, the asceticism that God is looking for. But this man would cut himself. He would open new, new wounds. He wouldn't allow uh, medication. It was a mess. And you have many examples of people doing this. Why? Because they wanted to draw closer to God. That's noble. But they wanted to do it in a way that would be physical, maybe even showy. We don't know their motives. But nonetheless, it became a time when monasteries and uh, orders and monks and uh, you know all these monastery things that you see even today were beginning to develop. Well Constantine of course initially had his capital in Rome and it becomes important because Constantine wanted to change the empire. The empire was changing under his nose anyway and he wanted to move his capital and so what he did was he moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople, to Byzantium. And he named it, renamed Byzantium after himself and thought, I'll just call it my name, Constantinople. 
And of course, when you know that history of that period, again, it was a time when the East and the West are starting to gradually split apart. You have philosophies that begin to develop on both sides, and they're beginning to be tension between the two. And so, one of the questions was, who's in charge of the church? Well, Constantine, of course, wanted to be in charge of the church, but still, the bishops in Rome wanted to be in charge of the church. And to make a long story short, eventually what happens is you have this schism that develops between the East and the West. The schism that develops between the Greek philosophical construct of the East and, of course, the Latin pragmatic concept, pragmatic concept of the West. In other words, you have the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire. And you know, it's said that the Greeks built philosophical systems and the Romans built roads. And you know, that dichotomy today is still there. In fact, if you go to Russia, they are influenced by the Byzantine mentality. And you'll feel it as soon as you get off the plane. Russia is a different place than the West. But nonetheless, there was this division. And in 1054, there was a great split. They mutually excommunicated each other. And they both took their choice at home. And so now you have, in 1054, the Catholic Church on one side and the Orthodox Church on the other. And so, of course, that split remains to this day. And so basically, when you look at a chart, and we'll finish up quickly here, you'll see that the early church was undivided. The early church, the New Testament church, of course, was following the apostles' doctrine. But once politics got involved... And once the church was made an arm of the state, then you had problems eventually leading to the system of 1054. During this period of time, you had great thinkers. Some of these are called church fathers. And by the way, there are some who will argue that we go back to the church fathers to determine what the early church believed. No, we go back to the apostles, not to the church fathers, because it is some of these very men, the great that began to implement things that clearly are in a different to a difference to God's Word. Well, let's notice very quickly, a few more minutes here, about the warnings of the apostolic period. You know, Paul, again, in Acts 20, had said, be careful. Be careful because there's going to come a change. Wolves are going to enter. Disciples are going to be drawn away. Jude said that he was writing in order to help uh, people contend earnestly for the faith had once all been delivered. What faith was that? The apostles' doctrine. Jude warned of that, Paul warned of that, when he said there's going to be coming people who uh, they have all kinds of, of ascetic practices. They're going to forbid marriage. They're going to depart from the faith. They're going to do all of these things with man-made rules. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Marcion who was a historical figure that lived uh, right after the first century into the second century. He was very uh, instrumental in splitting the church of that day. He believed the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament could not have been the same person. And so he had a dichotomy there. He made his own little canon of scripture, uh, uh, leaning more heavily on Luke and Paul. And then there were other groups that arose, such as, for example, Gnosticism, which some believe that John, in his writings, as all fighting in the century. Gnosticism was a doctrine that was based upon enlightenment, special revelation, and things that made a dichotomy between the spirit and the body, and it got very mystical and very crazy. And yet, 
that seems to have influenced the early church into the third century as well. Well, the question is, who was head of the church? Well, you know, the the Apostle Paul had warned that there was going to come a man of sin. He said there's a sin that's going to be revealed. He calls him the son of perdition. He says he was opposing uh, God and exalting himself even above God. Now, who was this individual? Well, I don't know. I'll be honest with you. Some believe it was the Pope. Some believe other leaders. But whatever it was, or who it was, the characteristics that Paul describes certainly could be applied to any characters, including those of the papacy at times, that go then into the second, third, fourth century and beyond. Now, I want to leave this tonight. I think this is so important. And this will set up uh, our study for tomorrow night. Now, in the first century, as we noted actually night before last, there were churches that were developed and started. Paul would go into an area, he would establish a congregation. But that congregation was what we call autonomous. It was self-ruled. In other words, the congregation at Rome did not look to the congregation at Ephesus or vice versa for their marching orders. Each one looked what? To the apostles' doctrine. And each one was bound together, yes, loosely, by what? By the doctrine of Christ and the love of God. And so you have a loosely connected group, a brotherhood, if you will, such as the seven churches of Asia and all the churches that we read about in the New Testament, that began to follow the apostles' doctrine. And yes, they were a brotherhood, but yet they did not try to control one another. Within those congregations, they developed their own leadership. They developed elders and deacons and teachers and, uh, of course, evangelists that they would send forth. As the church began to change, and as the church began to apostatize or get the truth, and began to, for example, at the Roman government, they began to see a pyramid structure, and that's exactly the what the church began to emulate. So they began to take these men who were elders, and they began to elevate one above the others. They began to say, "You're going to be a bishop now, no longer just a regular elder." Now, in the scriptures, an elder and a bishop are the same office. But in this particular period of time, they would take one elder and elevate him above his fellow elders. Well, you can see where this is headed. Eventually, over a period of various processes, which I've left out, you have one man being elevated over many congregations, and then one being elevated over many areas, and eventually you have the papacy. And that is exactly what we find in the empire is the structure. You know, servant leadership of the early church abandoned. And now Jesus Christ is no longer the head of the church, but it's the Pope. And so the Pope then gets to call all the shots, so to speak, just as in the Roman Empire, the emperor got to call the shots as well. Well, I'm going to stop there tonight. And tomorrow night... We'll probably change our theme a little bit, our, our, our uh, intended direction. But I want to talk to you about some changes, some additions, innovations that began to create the church, infant baptism, things like a special priesthood, other things that began to come in and wholesale change the way that the church looked at Scripture. And of course, those things 
eventually were the things that led to a revolt by some within the church, in the Catholic Church, which we might as well go ahead and say it now, at that time was developed, and of course eventually led to what we call the Reformation, where men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others stood up and said, what we're doing here is not right. We want to reform this movement. We want to reform this church. And they began then to try to reform some of those evil practices that had gradually slipped in to the church of that day. But we'll leave that for another time. And obviously, the material is just too vast to cover. But men often depart from God's way. And I think we need to keep that in mind, that as we look at history, as we look at church history, the history of man is the departure from the leadership and the authority of God. And thus, we find ourselves in a world of hurt. Well, we'll stop there tonight, but if you're here and you're not a Christian, as we have pointed out throughout this meeting, some very simple steps placed those in the New Testament into the Lord's church. You know, the Lord added to those daily, to the church daily, those that were being saved. And we find that they were being saved by obeying the gospel. They heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus, death, burial, resurrection. They believed it. They repented of their sins. They confessed Jesus as the Son of God. And then they were baptized for the remission of their sins. Peter had said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. And that's what they did, and that's what we must do today to be added to the Lord's church. And then our goal is to avoid man-made practices and doctrines, but continually, time after time, generation after generation, go back to the Bible and not depart from the faith. If you're here tonight, we can serve you in any way and help you obey the gospel. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?